is the Sounding Board Podcast with Hachi and Damo. Thanks to Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to Drinkwise. Good to have your company on Episode 3, Series 6 of The Sounding Board for Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to drink wise. We are recording this week's episode 90 minutes since the announcement that Victoria will soon be out of lockdown. Craig Hutchison, Damien Barrett with you. You're in Sydney, Hutchie. I'm in Melbourne here, back in a home office arrangement, but I'm uh, visualising a spring in your step today. Well, I'm watching you on Microsoft Teams, and the good thing here is that I'm actually getting an exclusive sounding board sneak peek into the Brighton abode. So the insurance-funded next-door neighbour-created rental home in Brighton after you and the neighbour had a Wilson-style home improvement moment over the fence, and now you've had to go down to Brighton and uh, rough it there with the uh, pantry set, and now you are in your own uh, rental, uh, taxpayer-funded rental, and it looks very leafy in the back, backyard. It looks very um, – there's space for those uh, weekend neighbourhood uh, barbecues, which you can uh, mix with the with the brethren and talk about how inferior the next suburb over is uh, and what school you're all sending your kids to. So it's good to see you in the Brighton accommodation, Damo. It looks very well presented. And uh, I love the way you carry on about this, Hutchie. If only you knew the crap we are going through at the moment, you wouldn't be uh, making light of it. But no, we've got a roof over our heads, Hutchie, and it's a, it's a good setup. Roof over your heads. Looks like the, even the roof's got a roof over its head. Looks like it's like a mansion. Looks like it's Shane Warne's place. He might be renting before he, he sells. Speaking of that, a little birdie tells me you've uh, you have uh, also got yourself some new accommodation. Uh, I found a base in Sydney, which is fantastic. So Crown Barangaroo, the new Crown, has got uh, is up and running, and so that's seven minutes from the office, and I couldn't be happy to have bunkered in there. It's a magnificent spot, and uh, I think it'll be a wonderful part of Sydney when it gets rolling. And the casino's not open at the moment, which is no issue at all. Certainly, no issue for me. But the the hotel itself and and the accommodation is magnificent. As, as Sam Newman regularly refers to his abode as just a little little bed sit, roll a bed out each night and single bed set up and, and yeah, it's a little tent, house, little tent it, it, at the not, side. Not, of that. A, not a not a palatial four bedroom suite overlooking uh, the world's greatest view. No, it? it's a tent with an annex and uh, it's worked out okay. And I'm not here often enough for it to cause too many chest pains. So. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best. Just on the house, before we move on to the big issues of the week, there's so many to deal with. I get a lot of requests on email and Twitter from people to Odd ask to how you and the next-door neighbour are currently faring since he flooded his home and you had to move out and you're in front of the small claims tribunal. How is the the natural cadence of the conversation between the two of you? Are you on email terms only as you work through the various spats or have you uh, attempted to try and forgive and forget the problem. No, we because we've moved out, Hutchie, we're not um, now living next door to neighbours. And as I've said a few times, cause since you've got wind of this particular part of my life, I, the people who live in the house next door to us are wonderful people. A situation happened to uh, to require us to, to move out of the house with which we basically and effectively share a wall with those uh, people, as you, as you do in the bent, uh, built up areas. And we're, we're just waiting through that now, no, aren't you? I, when, I, when I used the word wonderful to Janine at our Christmas lunch, your wife, it, it didn't ricochet back the same kind of way when I asked her what the collective view of the situation was. She perhaps was a little bit more honest than you are being spinning here today. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, what a week. We'll get to Eddie because that happened after we went to air last week. I want to start with something a little bit different. Tasmania, Hawthorne and North Melbourne. I know this is a difficult conversation for you because anytime North Melbourne is, is in a conversation – 
at all, you're irrational. And any, when you throw in relocation, you, all, all, all the uh, toys go out of the cot. So try and do your best to stay as pragmatic as you can through this chat. I'm fascinated by the deal in this and the commercial negotiations between the four parties. This is going to be one of those fascinating dances where the stakes are high and the consequences are high. So you've got four corners of people trying to coexist. You've got the AFL over to the left who enjoy playing games in Tasmania, who enjoy the money that comes from the state, who enjoy the interest in the sport, but don't seem or feel ready to have a team there. It's in corner one. In corner two, you've got the Tasmanian Premier, who, with the political support of the state, I would assume, is saying, enough's enough. We've been putting in millions to two clubs. We've, we've now seen we can get an NBL team up and get a stadium built. We need a team. And it's either all or nothing from here. That's either posturing or otherwise. You've got Hawthorne and Jeff Kennett, whose deal is up to a few million dollars a year, which is significant, and hasn't got a dingly deal. Well, he's got a deal, but not hasn't got it built. Saying, perhaps cheekily, perhaps otherwise, I'm opening the door on the possibility of a relocation. And then you've got North Melbourne saying, we're a hard no. The, the, the team with the least... The, the person with the least leverage in the room is the firmest in their view at the moment, and that's North Melbourne. Give me your take on how these parties are going to attack this and where it lands. Well, I think you've summed it up pretty well uh, at the outset there, Hutchie. When you say the party with the least leverage, are you referring to the historically um, lowly North Melbourne? Is that what you're referring to there? Yeah, I mean, North Melbourne haven't won over the Hobart community the way Hawthorne have won over the Launceston community. I don't think anyone would dispute okay. that. Now, you, could, you could argue they've been there longer in, in, in Launceston. I yeah, no, 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 I, I wouldn't. I mean, my, my experiences, which are basically the fly-in, fly-out experience, um, I, I, would, I would agree with what you've said there. Um, well, a couple of things. I, I don't see an AFL team being in Tasmania, and I've thought that for 15 years when the AFL got serious about the expansion areas and, and based upon the, the modelling they did way back in 2002, 3, 4 and 5 in preparation for the, the Suns and the Giants coming in, there was not one business um, measuring tool that had Tasmania as a team. And, and as far as I know, Hutchie, you know the business space better than I do, nothing has changed in that space. Yeah, well, that, it has. The only possibility would be a relocated club from an AFL-endorsed perspective. Is, this is just my reading of it, having looked at the issue now for 20 years as a journalist. But if North Melbourne is so now staunchly on record saying they're not in... I can't imagine Hawthorne going in. So I just don't see any change to the unfortunate status quo for, for Tasmania. I do. I think something will shake out of this one way or another. Like what, what, you, what does? Well, you've got to open your mind a little bit. You always think I'm flying a kite on this stuff, but let me, let me tell you what I think is generally possible here. For starters, the thing that has changed is the state government is a full underwrite on the team, in essence. They're prepared to underwrite its downside and its upside. They've created an upside-only scenario for the team and, for by extension, the AFL. So how you couldn't take that seriously, uh, I'm, I think it has to be taken seriously. It, it's a myth that the state doesn't generate enough money to fund a team. We learnt last year, the AFL report this week is as good a proof as you've ever seen, that it is, in essence, a media product supported by attendance, not the other way around. We saw last year $600-plus million dollars of money come into the game when a game wasn't played in Melbourne. The, the advertising is a nas- of national nature. The brands that are associated to it are in part local, but in most part national. And so it could absolutely fund itself. And with the government underwriting it, 
it's probably got the best chance of any team of being a standalone business into the future. That's fine, Hutch. You know, I, I'm, I don't agree with everything you've said there, but let's 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 say um, what you've just said there is in play, and and for the purpose of this argument, let's accept it. But yeah. how is it you are going to convince? 45 of the most elite footballers in the country to go and base themselves permanently in a state in which that every single person in an AFL sense who's made a success of his career out of football chooses to not live in that state. I think we saw, we've seen players now move to the Suns and to GWS and get their heads around that pretty quickly. So I don't think where you live is as big a thing as it was. The state of Tasmania. It's a, it's a massive thing where you live, Hutchie. It's a massive thing where well, you live. It's all right we've, for we've you to sit there and. A situation there and... in the AFL now where it's almost gone back to what it was. You play for a club that's in your state. You, always, you sit there with rented walls in Brighton with that opinion. Most of the population. Think Tasmania is a wonderful I've place lived, to visit. I've, I've and lived. Live. I've lived a, a total of five years in two different states, so I've, I've been prepared to move around, but and I'm quite open to it. But you haven't lived in Tassie. It's a very, very livable city, Hobart. Un- unbelievably livable city. Furthermore, How would you know. I love Hobart. I absolutely yep. love it. I've never spent more than four or five days there. How would you know it's a livable city? I spent. You've never my, lived in it. My partner's family is there, and their family history is pronounced there. And I spend quite a lot of time there, and love it. It's a great place, Hobart. Fantastic. And so too is Launceston for that matter. Well, I noticed you're you're living in Barangaroon right now, not not, uh, not Hobart, uh, West Point Casino. I'm in Hobart all the time, all the time with Claire. Furthermore, the Hawks have done the smart thing and left the door ajar. What's the harm in leaving it ajar? If you're going into a negotiation, you need to have an open mind, even if you're in the back of your mind think this will never happen. Why North Melbourne shutting the door? How is that responsible to their members and to their fans to be – as hard-nosed when – so the state have said all or nothing. North Melbourne should be saying we've long stated our preference to remain at Arden Street, but as always, we'll look at every possible scenario, partially full or otherwise, that may or may not suit the North Melbourne footy club. It would want to be extreme circumstances where we'd look at it, but like everyone, and I'm sure Hawthorne would say the same thing, we remain open monitor. to it. Why they are shutting the door going on a negotiation where the least likely party is at least keeping it ajar – I think the Kennett strategy is far smarter than what North Melbourne are playing. And I don't know why they've, they're have mm. stubborn in there. And the other thing is the deal, right, can be constructed, as we've talked about lots, where you're really only haggling over where you sleep and how many nights. Because you're going to get 10 games in Tassie and 10 games in Melbourne as part of any relocation and play only two interstate. We're seeing that the interstate travel is almost not really a thing. We saw a year of bubbles last year. If Let's run the exercise. Hawthorne could play 10 games in the MCG and 10 games in in uh, Tasmania, six in Launceston, four in Hobart, or vice versa, five and five, and only travel twice outside of those two states. They could save some money on Dingley or reallocate part of what they would otherwise have spent themselves on it, and they could get the best of both worlds. And then you're really haggling... Does anyone go and watch footy training anymore, Tamo? It doesn't happen. Nah. You don't. You don't need nah. to be at Arden we Street in case. Anyway, you? <laughs> you know, there's the whole notion <laughs> of we need to be at Arden Street because we train there on Thursday nights. The community don't go and watch and care. So, and, and do you the, really the, care the where you're? Of Melbourne, um, that punt road stretch of road, which is probably the busiest stretch of traffic in Melbourne, clubs are clubs have enough um, gall to tell us that they are closed sessions of training there. So, so do you there think is no the, training remotely attached anymore. So the, sorry to talk over. So the average fan cares about where their team plays and how often they can see them. I don't think they care about where they train, and I don't think they really care about where they sleep. 
They, they might care about what they're called, and that's another story. But why would you be so hung up on training at Arden Street and sleeping in a Melbourne bed if you can have a similar-ish fixture? I just don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. Again, we've got a little bit nitty-gritty here on this particular Tassie topic, and we might move off it in a minute. But hasn't the point of this whole argument now got down to the, the Tassie government and, and the consortium around it, which has been, I think, very well put together and very well run to this point, where there is now an ultimatum in play. And there's a, there's a timeline right now, given these deals with Hawthorne and North Melbourne have only one season remaining. Isn't the whole premise of the argument now that the team has to be based in the state, not not to not to um, open up the possibilities of what you have said to, to be a fly-in, fly-out model for X amount of times. Yeah, I think that's what's important to Tassie, and I'm saying, well, who really cares if you're one of those yeah. two teams, as long as your, your fixture's a bit similar. The only other thing I'd say is there's an opportunity here for another team to think about this deal. If you are really industrious, it, it, we all just assume it's Hawthorne North or local team. Get get industrious if you're another team. Try and cut the 10-10-2 deal and have a look at it. It could be a game changer for someone in you know, one of the Victorian teams. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that because I, I do I do feel that that's the only model that, that can work. But the way I read last week's announcements from the Tassie government was they wanted more than that. Hachi, tell me, what was in your eyes, and I don't mean this to be a trick question, but what was in your eyes to, to be the most bizarre media appearance of last week since we last spoke? The most bizarre media appearance. And there's probably a few options here. Oh, we might we touch start? on a few as, as this program unfolds today. But there was one that was particularly in the forefront of my of my reckoning when it came to that. And it was Andrew Demetrio's appearance on uh, the Whateley program uh, the morning after the damning report into the operations of Crown, which also happened to be the morning after the departure through his own choice of Eddie Maguire's Collingwood Football Club president. I had no idea what that virtual recluse in a media sense was doing um, that day, defending himself, well, defending Eddie Maguire and 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 his role in football over the journey on the day that uh, he was also named himself in a very damning report. Well, it was good journalism by Jared and by his producer, Ross Flegeltorp, for starters, and it was in most part about Reflecting on Eddie's, there was a good journalism. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to get into this part. Well, he was a he was a newsworthy topic. He, on... just, he just supported he supported Eddie Maguire and wasn't able to talk about the other thing that was the only thing the news issue of the day. Well, it's seven days on, and you're still talking about it, so it must have been relevant. I'm it's raising still... it as a media issue, Hutchie. Why would he bob his head up, having gone to ground for so long? And 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 what I wanted to raise about this, so so two reports were in the public domain at that point in time. That the do better calling report, report. He he queried that. He he questioned it. He said it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That's me paraphrasing what what he seemed to say on that interview. And he also, in a statement subsequent to the interview, queried the report into his own opera at Crown that had ultimately led to him resigning. He just doesn't pay attention or doesn't pay heed to the reports that are floating around that have been well, put together been, by people with good reason. I mean, he's always been his own man, hasn't he? He's always just called as he said that never been worried about the consequence. So I don't think that was any different. I think his intent was to uh, reflect on the good that Eddie did. And I think you're not being unfair to say that he questioned whether it was worth – I don't think he went quite that far, but it, it was an inference that – it didn't have anything new in it that, that hadn't been long explored or surprised and or explored, sorry. Um and yeah, I don't think he I don't think he at that point of the interview that day was reading the crown tea leaves because he got didn't he get tapped on the shoulder pretty much soon after that and 
was explained to him by his lawyers that he yeah his it, was within, was it was within well, I say twenty four hours but it was certainly within thirty six to forty eight yep. that, that he ultimately yeah felony sought at Crown Two which I, I felt from reading that report again I'm not a business reporter actually I didn't analyse it like the business reporters did but on reading that report there was no way he could stay in that position at well, Crown. We're at, we are in the fall on your sword era. It's fall on your sword society now, and there's swords left, right, and centre, and boards are particularly sensitive to, to swords. Regardless of whether you believe it, don't believe it, think it's right, wrong, or different, it, it looked always difficult from a narrative point of view that he would remain on that board after that was tabled. And I, I think Andrew, who a, was a CEO five or six years ago, would have seen off many of those type of things around the footy industry. But the society's changed. It's... There's a there's a need to to take greater ownership in the modern era, and that's I guess that was the way I was going to go. So he probably didn't read the play on that as much when he did the interview, and his in, interview was in good intent. He's always interesting content, Andrew. You can't dispute that he's got an opinion. It's not always one you agree with, but he he was he would have been a fantastic radio identity in his own right. Can you imagine him? I don't know in Neil Mitchell's slot or in. Uh, Hosting an after, you know, afternoon show where he's got an opinion. If, if you had social time with Andrew, he's got an opinion on everything in the world. Yeah, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he does. He does. I just couldn't believe he bobbed up on that day, um, given what was going on in in that world of his at that point in time. And I don't know whether it helped Eddie Maguire, to be honest with you, um, having an endorsement from Andrew How? at that point in time. Speaking of Eddie, I read your story on AFL.com, and there were some really strong stories written. One was by you, one was by Jake Nile. I think there was one in the Herald Sun from Robbo, all with similar type of tone. We obviously didn't see it coming as quickly or at all the last week when we did the show, so we didn't acknowledge it. So looking back now, how do you feel about it? What's the fallout in your mind? Yeah, I, I, again, similar to what I just said about Andrew Dimitri, I, there was no other way. Now, now, I say there was no other way. I still felt Eddie Maguire was going to play out the season in the time frame in which he had said he would, and that would be at the end of this particular season. But you, you look back at what happened at Collingwood under his watch, and, and while 98.63% of it was outstandingly successful, the, the the ugly remaining one point, whatever it was I left over there, was damning enough, Hachi, for that football club to, to not be able to move on from this racism issue, rightly or wrongly, through Eddie's lens, if Eddie was to stay there. And, and that's what ultimately it came down to. And in the end, we discussed this the previous week at, at length, in the end, his use of that word proud at that previous media conference was ultimately the one that, that brought the time frame into the uh, into last week and was ultimately one that I think actually married up with what he had said previously in the racism space when, when he survived the, the King Kong comments of 2013. There, there was no other person in the history of Australian sports officialdom, executive nature, chairman nature, who would have survived that moment even back then and was yeah, able to fair. continue for so long. So when you when you add the, the, the proud moment and the proud reaction he had to that issue, and then the players clearly had an issue with yep. that word themselves, and 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 that that the weight of, of their collective response to it, Hutchie, I, I think is still yet to play out totally in terms of the role it played, the the collective players' voice it played in his decision to resign, as he said himself this time or about eight days ago, effective immediately. Society has evolved for the good since two thousand and thirteen. I don't think a media event like that he, you could survive in twenty twenty one. It would just be it was it was a massive furor then. It would be 
the storm. I, I don't know how we survived it in two thirteen, Hutchie. And, and look, we—I don't think we had this platform at this stage, what? but we discussed it. Um, I, I don't know how we survived it at that point in time. And I, and I take your point that has changed. Well, he had—he had. I think what saved him at the time, rightly or wrongly, was he had such runs on the board, and it was his first major major error. It, ironically, if he had stepped down 14, 14 and a half years into his presidency and the last seven, all of the gaffes came in the last seven, if he'd left the room two-thirds of the way into the journey, there'd be a statue outside Collingwood of him by now, which he would be uh, revered for. wouldn't be able to walk into the club. And I, I think they'll, in time, they'll, he's, that will be the, the, his legacy will be Unbelievable at Collingwood still, and that will be better reflected in time. It's a bit raw for everyone right now. I want to ask you the question. It's a bit hard for us because we we know and like Eddie. What would he reinvented himself once before? Came to Sydney, didn't quite work out the way he would have liked as CEO of Nine. Came back and had to reacquaint himself back into Melbourne. He resigned from all the jobs he had and had to re almost go again. He reinvented himself like a like a musician would, and had a had a fantastic next eleven year run. What's his next move, do you think? If you were he, what would you do next? Because he doesn't um, need the money, right? He doesn't need the the notoriety. He doesn't need all of that. I, I think what he needs is is a voice that, that is relayed publicly, and I think that's an important part of what he's about. But I don't know whether that's going to be something that he, he will do in the next 12 months. Um, I, I think... If, if it was a different person, I think that different person would take the full remainder of 2021 away from the public uh, limelight. But I don't know whether Eddie's wide that way. I do think, though, that if he if he was to just have a slight refocus, actually, I think it it would be good for his, his own media company, Jam TV, for him to fully concentrate on that because uh, I think that seems to be flying at the moment too. And I think with him putting, putting extra resource into that personally – it, it could go to the absolute next level. Yeah, a, a year off would be the strategic move. It's just a matter of whether that he finds that too boring. From a, he, he does like being on air. Yeah. It sounds like he's going to do oh, – I don't, actually don't know because I don't have um, any exposure to the Wednesday footy classified, and nor, nor should I because I'm the Monday guy. But it sounds like he's going to do that. Uh, is that your understanding? And I haven't. I'm not connected with that show any, anymore, as you know. I, I haven't heard anything to the contrary that, that that he, you know, that he would be stepping away from that. I couldn't see. I, I don't think he, it's in his nature to step away from something that's there because he will also be doing the Foxtel coverages too. I would, yeah. I would imagine. I mean, yeah. the, he might he might have to do it for contractual reasons. Both shows. If he if he could, the, the perfect scenario would be to down tools, have a year, enjoy your family, and uh, reset your mind, and then go again and in, back into those environments and more. But I don't know. But that's it's always easier when you're from the outside and harder from the in. Kane Corns had an interesting take last week. I, I, he I heard him yeah. on on SEN Hutchie saying that he could be the most dangerous and and compelling media performer this year, given that in Kane's eyes and it was Kane's opinion that he was uh, potentially going to then use the forums he had to uh, to take a few pot shots back. I, I, I personally don't see him doing that. I, I know he's going to harbour some. I'll, I even use the word hatred at times, and I don't use that in a negative in this in this context because he, he does feel he has been um, put up onto the uh, onto the platform and shot in in that figurative sense by people that he, he felt that and he might even put you and I into that for all I know. Um, so I, I can see him having that view at some stage of the past week and maybe a bit longer, but I don't see him doing that. Do, do you think he'd be using certain platforms potentially to to square a few things up? No, no, he'll dust himself off and get on with it. He's he's got a great sense of being able to reinvent himself and I, I 
I don't think he needs to reinvent himself, but I do think he, he as a media product will be, it'll be a little easier for him because you, mm. it would have been, you can only imagine how many times he, he did a, when you when you're conflicted, as we all are in some way, it is tricky yep. to to serve all needs. Um, I'm just running, keep you a list here, by the way. But just want to just get that up to date because it's going so quickly. I just had corns at Demetrio. So, just the list of times you've listened to SEN and commented on something. So you obviously, for someone who's critical of the platform, you're clearly a, a much more frequent listener than I realised. So I'm just going to keep a little list of those as we work our way through. Listen to Corns and then heard the Demetrio one on, yep. uh, on on a replayed platform, which which yeah, what wasn't at the yep. time, Hutchie? But yes, so I, 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 as I well. only say I listen to it. I've never <laughs> said I haven't listened to it. Uh, Just listen to Triple M more. Have Channel 7 signed up to Google News Showcase? Have they been the first ones to go? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, we're going to get there. Um, and, and as we speak today, I haven't got the details of this one, but it appears that the Nine and Fairfax arrangement has also gone, gone down the same path. Now, th- these numbers, Hachi, uh, uh, have been reported. I've got no way of knowing if they're right or wrong, but again, I, I refer to the business reporters, who I reckon are as good as any going around, um, are referring to a, a figure or thereabouts in certain – parts of these articles of $30 million per deal. And again, no media outlet's going to confirm these numbers, but is is that number about right? If Channel 7, let's for the purpose of this conversation, use that $30 million figure as way of, of starting up a deal, which hasn't been in place until now, with Google for, for rights to that, um, that media and for distribution of that media on, on Google's own platforms. And, and again, the reports even this morning, Hutchie, and we're, st- we're talking on Wednesday of this week, uh, was that 9-2 had also gone down that, that path of an arrangement officially and financially and formally with, with Google. Yeah, so it looks like that's, uh, there's going to be enough publishers that will align to it. I don't know enough about the detail myself, but uh, it does make the news dispute a little more interesting, Damo. Yeah. What, what about the – can I ask you about the tennis? The – just before you jump off it, how's it make it interesting that the two other media outlets have gone in first, or the two other media outlets realise you've got to play with Google at some stage. You yep. can't play against them. You've got to bring them on your side of the net. Is is that what you're saying is interesting to it? We talked about it a bit last week. If tell me a media company that isn't looking for revenue in 2021, and and if you've got something that you're already doing that you can be paid for in a way that suits your business model and theirs, and is part of the biggest global business in the world, I, I can't imagine that's a, not, a, not a tough thing to look at. So it, it's not like news have got a moral stance against it, which I, I, as I said, I understand and respect that too, but there's a commercial, if there's a commercial deal in it, and every, everyone, in media, everyone's frenemies. So, so, the, so the purity of the News Limited public bemoaning the situation, you're predicting will go out the window the moment there's a nice well, check. And, and, and knowing the way news would not, work, it would want to be, in their eyes, greater than the checks passed to other media organisations. Well, I mean, Are you saying that they'll back down on the ethics and the purity of, of what they're well, saying? Who's to say it's not a negotiation in disguise? Who's to, I don't think it is at the moment, but who's to say it, it, it isn't or won't be? I mean, mm. the, the amalgamation of platforms, the different way people are distributing content, the, the days of having friends and enemies in media are kind of over. You're, 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 you're a friend at 11am and a foe at 1pm in the eyes of many businesses, not <laughs> not, not ours, may I, may I be clear, but in many businesses, that's how it goes, right? Because the, you are forced to do projects with others here and then later on that afternoon you're competing there. Like, it's just how it's become. Yeah. And it's the fragmentation I, of media has in part caused that, hasn't it? It's a, we are in a wild yeah, time of distribution 
last week we trialled Clubhouse as a platform here and we had people asking us direct questions in real time from Tokyo, even though we hadn't advertised that we were going to do it, and from overseas. Um, it's, it's a really interesting platform. There's going to be a lot of these come up, and some of them will be companion products for other mediums, other ones will be competitors, and sometimes those both things will happen on the same day. Just on that, I, I don't need to take up your offer of an invitation to Clubhouse too, Hachi. I, I was invited <laughs> onto it after someone listened oh, no. to our program last week. So and, I'm, and I'm now part of it and I've got in through other means, Hachi. But th- thanks for your offer. I saw your invite at the front door trying to get into the nightclub and I thought, oh, I'll just let him wait outside for a little bit and just make sure. No, 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 no. no and I then did. someone swept in and gave you an invite. No, no, no. I was offered an invitation by... A, a listener of our, of our product, actually, which, um, which is interesting because I know that the invitation that you offered me probably would have come with a yep. few strings attached, and I just wasn't aware what those strings were. Talk to me about the tennis. Hey, yeah, what do you understand yet, Hachi, for what it's worth? I've, I've never met this man, uh, but I reckon he, he's probably got claim to being in the conversation at the very least as being the, the best sports administrator in the past 50 years. I've never met him. Craig Tiley, head of the uh, Aussie Open. H- how's he pulled this event off this year? having already prior to this year got it established as one of the great events um, of all time. Well, he's not publicity shy, that's for sure. Craig, he's done the rounds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's his success. (laughs) I I would, um, not not to disagree with that by any means, he's done a fantastic job. It is one event a year in context. The sporting codes have had to run hundreds of events a year to keep their sports going. So I do think while it's been an outstanding achievement, it has been a singular focus of one event, and that is a touch easier, perhaps arguably. I think arguably. you're talking him down. I think you are talking him down here. What? Why? He's had to deal with the the international borders of this event, Archie. I, I just said it's and, been... And the prima donnas that, that, that come in and play the event, including some I, of the greatest names we've seen. I just said he, it's a fantastic event, and he's had appropriate recognition for his unbelievable job on it. It does highlight to me, though, that those who have had to run many, many, many events have been under-recognised for the work they've done. All right. Interesting perspective. Hey, let's jump into the question of um, the week now. For oh, before you do, before you do, can I just ask you about the tennis? What do you think the perception of the public has been on it in the end, given that it has had been a weird time where you've got a largely entitled player base who've turned up in a town that feels very wounded and you've got the irresistible force and the immovable object here in the the, the, I I need it, I need it now versus you can't have it, go quarantine. What what do you think the the social dynamic and the legacy of the post-event will be in the eyes of the public? We, we are so predictable as a as as a people, Hachi, as a collective. Had Nick Kyrgios continued his surge, it would not have mattered, and we only needed to see his um his last game. He played consecutive five setters, won the first of those, lost the second, but but won a won a legion of fans on the way he, uh, he he went about it. And of course, and this was always going to be the key to it. Ash Barty, as we yep. talk right now on this Wednesday afternoon early, is uh, is actually one set all. Actually, I just had a look up at the screen there. So, if she continues, Hachi, it, it won't matter. I, I don't feel what what it was that uh, people may have had an issue with when it came to the uh, the tennis players being given special considerations to come in. No doubt, if bandwagging was an Olympic sport, Melbourne would be Michael Phelps. We, we are brilliant at jumping on on scale late. And masters of talking down on the way. So we only remember the last day or two of any sporting event. Anything that happens in the lead-up is forgotten. It's all about the outcome. So you can have Novak Djokovic and these some of these other um, highly strung individuals 
could en masse walk unsafely through Collins Street without masks on and protest on the steps of Spring Street about our city and how bad our fans are. And if Ash Barty wins, it'll all be forgotten. Ash <laughs> Barty needs to win. The upside of her and the bandwagon that will come with it versus the downside is significant. Yep. And and I think Nick Kyrgios gave it the, the, the spark that, that it certainly didn't have to that point, did it? Those two five-setters he played and the ratings that, that, that were attached, the TV ratings that were attached to those two performances put it up there. Unfortunately, he lost, but the, the Barty uh, train is still alive as we speak, though, although we're not into the live commentary as, as a rule on this show, but still looking a little bit dicey just as we speak. Question you- of the week time now for Drink Wars. On the sounding board, it's our question of the week for Drinkwise. If you're choosing to drink, choose to Drinkwise. This is from Simon Evans, Hutchie, on email. There have been several cases of, quote, hindsight outrage in the last few weeks, being the replaying of past media content from public people that are controversial in the context of current day society, but may not have been when same content was published. Do you believe the media recognises a social issue in the news cycle and seeks out past comment to bring into the public via its platforms to generate strong sentiment with its consumers, good for ratings, consumption numbers, or rather this public sentiment and past content is circulating within the social media dialogue and the media is reasonably identifying and reporting on this. It's a good question. The Britney Spears uh, documentary, I I think, is one aspect to which Simon Evans is referring. He may well be referring to the Eddie Maguire comments of um, of 2013, replayed recently. I'm assuming there's other aspects to it. But, but it, it's it's a good question the way Simon's couched it. What's your take? We talked about this last year. Retrospective gotcha journalism is the new thing. And it's being fueled by social media. It's being fueled by the clickbait nature of, print, of online publications. Because retrospective video is the most snackable product going around outside of memes in 2021. And everyone loves a gotcha, particularly if you can inflict gotcha pain on a perceived rival competitor or a tall poppy. Um, Waleed Ali springs to mind. There was an attempt at trying to poorly portray his interview with Heredia Lumumba at the time. People can make their own mind up, but there was no doubt that the way that that was covered was an attempt to try and undermine his social position or his journalistic credibility to inflict damage on him. And that was an example of modern journalism trying to be retrospective gotcha. Once upon a time, a story passed in a day or two and the controversy was gone forever. Now we want to reignite things that happened years ago. And, of course, society's changed. We, we do speak differently and we should and have for years, year on year. So things that you said in 10, 11, 12, 13 are not as educated and as not as um, considerate as they are in 21 and will be again in 31. That's mm. to, to Simon's point, and I don't know whether I'm taking out of context to, to what he's asked there, because it is quite a complex um, issue he's, he's raised and, and, and worded himself, but do, do you, are you convinced that the platforms upon which these, these retrospective pieces of media are being presented on, are you convinced that either the proprietors of those products or sort of platforms or, or the actual individual authors themselves are actually outraged, or do you think they're doing it for a media product? Because I, I feel it's the latter. It's to drive consumption. I mean, yeah. does, I mean, does it, is anyone actually ever as outraged as they say they are? This goes down to Twitter. Like people are three times more outraged than they probably really are to drive reaction to themselves as their own publishing tool. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not saying that people don't have yeah, those views, but they, they, they put them in a big megaphone on Twitter. And there's retrospective LBW now in journalism, and there's no DRS. You just get given out from six years ago, and you can say, oh, at the time it was going down the leg, I'm sure, but you just can't, can't call for the, ump- ump- the third umpire. So, I like it, that. It, it is a it is a dangerous trend, and it is being highly consumed by the public. Mm. Retrospective journalism. Did you catch so, up with the Britney Spears documentary, which is part of this conversation? Yeah. Well, the I'm, the I'm, now I'm, highlighting um, aspects of her earlier life as a as a as a performer, and and the treatment with which she was uh, subjected to by people around her, and and particularly big name media identities interviewing her. I haven't seen it. I've seen a little snippets of it. I, the I, I, tend I do want to watch it because I think it's a, it's going to be a good product. I intend to watch it. I haven't yet. I've read Justin Timberlake's yeah. statement. I read that in the New York Post the other day, and it was carefully worded and seemed very, very heartfelt. So, yeah, hopefully um, some good comes from it. But I, again, I haven't, I haven't yet seen it. What do you think about Harry and Meghan doing the Oprah interview demo, in, which is coming up, and also they're releasing the picture of their family and that. The London tabloids have had a field day at their expense. Yeah. They, the front page, I'll actually find you the front page of the, I think it was the Daily Star. Daily Star had blacked out their faces, so they had a, a cover over both of their eyes, and the headline was, Publicity Shy Woman Tells 7.67 Billion People I'm Pregnant. And then it doesn't name them by name. On the front page, it says, A shy woman famous for hating publicity told the entire world last night, I'm having another nipper. In scenes that could have been straight from a rom-com but weren't, the ex-actress and her ginger beau chose Valentine's Day to announce they were having another nipper. And then on the Oprah front, it was reported, I think Piers Morgan mentioned, that Oprah had only met them once before their wedding, which she was sitting up the front. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> it's a really... Yeah. Uh, Harry um, and Meghan is really interesting to me. The... The relationship between being angry with the media on the left and using it to your advantage on the right, which is an area we haven't really explored a heap of here. It's clearly in England, which is a tabloid-led city in London. They're yeah. aghast that their royal family could be so angry at their media and then still seek to, um, in their minds, exploit it. What What do you think? I think it's a fair bit critical, but I'm not going to get too worked up, Robert Hutchie. We talked about outrage before, and a lot of it is infected outrage. And, and I'm, I'm giving you my opinion because you've asked for it. It's not something I would have thought we needed to talk about, to be honest with you. I think it's a good it's a good um, comparison. But my memory of Harry and, and Meghan leaving London or England w- w- was to get a form of privacy, wasn't it, away from yeah, the royal family? That's, that's the whole it, point. It, yes. Am I wrong in reminding myself of that? or? Yeah. Their whole argument was privacy, and they've sought to do public speaking and create a Netflix series, and in talks about a Netflix series, and now releasing, now doing tell-alls, and like, do do you have to be consistent in your views of the media, or can you denounce it until it suits you? Well, people have discovered, and and Oprah Winfrey is one of those people, Hutchie, obviously, and so is Meghan Markle. When it's all said and done, you don't need the traditional media. To a point, to a point. Well, Donald Trump would have said the same thing. He used Twitter as a direct channel to the public because they were not seeking, they were just the distributor of his content They were until they decided that they were indeed an editorial business after all and were able to and censor you, him. You do need an element of it, don't you? As, as much as you like denouncing it and criticising it and calling it everything under the sun, you, if, you, if you want to have a presence in a public way, you do need some form of 
some form of the traditional media, well, I, would, I would have thought. I, I would think it's a bit simpler than that now. There is no such thing as the media. We are all, as civilians, in the media, every single one of us. Do, do you reckon yeah. we're there now? We're there now. Some people are paid a living from platforms like us and others are unpaid members of the media, but the entire society is a member of the media and your mobile phone, your Instagram page and your Facebook are just and can be even more powerful platforms than the front page of the Daily Star. And it's, you know, all we are doing as civilians now is haggling over how active we want to be and whether we want to be compensated for it. But everyone's their own platform. Everyone is a media publisher, and that's the that's the area that journalists have struggled to get their heads around and adapt to. But in simple terms, every single person listening now is in the media. And if you don't think that, go for a job interview and I guarantee you that the person, if they're really interested in you, will have had a look at your own media channels or, or looked at your LinkedIn or your, your Facebook if it's public and, and sought to understand your, your interests and your... You know, I'm sure the HR people are all around the place to do that. It, it, we are all in the media. It's just a matter of how mm. active we choose to be. Mm. Arguably, Business. those unpaid are the least compromised. Well, they, well, they're not beholden to the old rules, are they? Not beholden to the special interests that we all are. Yes, and, you, Damon. And a, you, and a lot of interests. Of you, all of you. All of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Another, another conversation Mark, for Mark another Thompson. day. Yep. Hachi, business of the week time now for Officeworks. On the sounding board, it's our business of the week for Officeworks. Let's get to work. Officeworks has everything you need to prepare yourself for the working year ahead. This is from Jason Cardoza from Perth. He's got a nomination for Business of the Week, and it is Pentanet, Hutchie, which I believe you know more about than I do. Yeah, it's a good, it's a great story. So it just IPO'd recently. It's we've done to, for, for sake of full disclosure a small amount of work together. But I know the guys, uh, Timothy and Stephen Cornish. They started in 2017 in their home to build the first communications tower in Perth. They were frustrated by the internet. And there are now a $180 million market cap publicly listed IPO uh, seeking to build itself in the eastern side of Australia. It's it's an attempt to take the fixed wireless network broader and they've allowed – and they've got an um, interest in things like gaming and esports and a whole bunch of other things that could potentially be interconnected with the telco story. They are also the major sponsor of the Perth Wildcats. I reckon they're on the on the strip. And their revenues would not be near their public worth. They're one of those companies that have been valued in advance of their... And they have a go sort of guy. So that's a fair enough uh, nomination. If anyone's got nominations for Business of the Week, just send them in to us. And um, you'll know our email better than me, Damo. I don't, you don't get access to our email and you read it every day. But, or you can post it on Facebook. But I, I like the fact that I love, as you know, self-made people who start their own thing, take all the risk and have a go. And I only just the other day read their story and then I saw that note come through. So well done to the guys who are creating the digital uh, hub in Perth, um, backed by high bandwidth and low latency internet services. Business of the week for Officeworks. Let's get to work with Officeworks, helping you make bigger things happen. Um, I actually don't know the email address, Suchi, and it's embarrassing that I have to admit that. I'm Jane sure we'll uh, rectify that on our, on our social media platforms. Jane will have that for you on a text in a hot second from now, I'm sure. I'm sure she will. Here it is now. She held it up to the screen. I've just lost Jane, it. Jane, you've got a microphone, Jane. Jane so we'll, People we'll, love your we'll voice. We'll work it just, out later, Jane. It was just, oh, just jump in and tell us. Guys, on it's on the rundown, the sounding board at sen.com.au. See the big bold type there, Damo? <laughs> 
That nah, is a bit of an issue I for Damon. I don't go off this rundown too often, Jay, and I cannot see that even even now as I'm trying to find it. But there you go. You've told us what it is. Hachi, just as we go today, the AFL released its finances for the effectively the 2020 season. A loss of $22.8 million. It's not often you would refer to a loss of that magnitude as being a, a I'd say, outstanding result. Given the fear that was in place 11 months ago when the competition was shut down indefinitely, could you have foreseen a, a, a moment where only, and I, I do say this half, well, jokingly, where only $23 million was lost on the operations of that particular year? Well, it's a, it's a great effort by the business to have been able to stem the, the tide. It also speaks to the character of the staff and the pay cuts and the stand-downs and the sacrifices. And I know that is a, um, a difficult thing for those people that went through that, as all businesses, including ours, have in some way, shape or form. But it's a great credit to those people who have shared the vision of being there for a long, to- a long time. And, uh, yeah, it's a still a significant loss and it's a, it's a bank situation that they would, would rather not have. Um, it's still a lot of money, $22 million. It shouldn't be lost in, yeah. in, the, in the scheme of things. And you can see how brutal the cuts had, had to come in the industry. But hopefully now it's given the industry a chance to f- have bottomed out and find its ability to build from. And you wouldn't have thought we were having those conversations six months ago. So uh, well done to yeah. everybody involved, in particular the people who have, are on the AFL journey. I, I like to yeah. think that, like many businesses, like that, that start hiring again and start reinvesting in employment and... I think that's starting to happen around the place where all, everyone's a little bit cautious about what's ahead because we don't know. But we're starting to see the AFL industry do that again. And I think we're seeing some movement. And I think that's that's good. Yep, slowly coming out of it. Hachi, that's it for uh, this particular episode, episode three of series six of the sounding board for drink wise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to drink wise. And if you're choosing to swan down the main street of Brighton into the pantry for a latte, you'll see Damo at the front. And if you see him, be sure to drink wise. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Board podcast with Hutchie and Damo. Tune in for questions tomorrow and to send a question to the boys, email thesoundingboard at sen.com.au, follow the show on Twitter at Sounding Board EP and like the Facebook page. It's all thanks to Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to Drinkwise. Drinkwise.